Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, the route in global markets really starting to take hold. And for many investors, the strategies they've employed for the last two years, and frankly, really post-GFC, we're talking more than a decade now, just don't seem to be working. Or alternatively, you're not sure if they're going to work in the future. Today, I'm speaking with Julian McCormack of Platinum Asset Management. He's joined us before and he has warned about the dangers of excessive valuations. I feel like he may have even called the peak uh, and everything he has said to date feels very prescient right now. So I'm super excited to talk to him. Julian, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, not at all. It's a huge pleasure to talk to you uh, whenever I get the chance. Well, uh, now feels like <laughs> it feels like the right time. It really feels like the right time. You're the first person I thought of uh, to talk about global markets because the US is giving back years of gains now, the NASDAQ in particular, and I am sure you're going to dig into some of the numbers for us. But can you tell us a little bit about what's happening right now? Yeah, what's happening right now is, is well, looks very much like the end of a cycle. And it's a really facile thing to say, but it, it has layers and layers and layers and layers, and they always do. So I think most people will be very familiar with debates around interest rates and Fed policy, Federal Reserve policy, and and the sort of ongoing you know machinations around that stuff. But that is just one of a whole series of factors that need identifying, I think. So the first is, is that interest rates are massively out of whack with inflation, and so they're going to go up. They've already gone up, right? So the, the US two-year note has gone from 15 basis points up towards 270 basis points or wherever it trades today. So interest rates have gone up and they will continue to go up. That flows through mortgage rates and a whole bunch of different things. In the states, most particularly, actually, uh, short-end lending, so uh, auto loans, personal loans, credit cards. So that that piece is happening. And that's monetary policy, sort of broadly defined. But that's just one piece, because the, the the other very important piece from a policy perspective is fiscal policy, and that's so. So, so I like to say that the central banks can lend, and that's the sort of interest rate piece, but they can't spend. They don't have any uh, appropriations power, we'd call it, under our constitution. And that fiscal piece joined the party with the monetary piece late in this cycle in response to COVID. Well, it also uh, began to have an effect with the Trump tax cuts. But, I mean, to give you a sense, the Trump tax cuts took the US federal deficit to order of magnitude 4 to 5% of GDP and then uh, latterly in the last two years uh, the federal deficit in the states went to around about 16% of GDP you know on a year rolling basis so you had something like 20% over roughly two years of fiscal stimulus pumped into the economy and that was done not via issuing bonds solely to the public, 
because that would force interest rates up. That was monetized in inverted commas. It was it was funded by the Federal Reserve. So monetary policy and fiscal policy both pushed in the same direction, very very strongly. And when I say very very strongly, to the largest extent in human history in peacetime, completely unprecedented outside of World War II. So that's what just happened. And the declines that we've seen, so, you know, today is sort of mid-May 2022. Um, you know, the NASDAQ's down around about uh, 28%. Uh, today and and that takes us back to something like 80 months ago so it's not like we've given back a whole lot so the policy piece is all reversing because the second half of the story of the fiscal stuff is we now have something like on on congressional budget office estimates an eight and a half percent negative movement in the deficit in the state so so uh, and this is quite important for people to understand if if the government's printing a deficit it's giving that as a surplus in inverted commas to households and businesses so as that deficit shrinks in the short term all other things being equal one percent shrinking in the deficit is one of gdp is one percent being knocked off gdp and now eight percent plus is being knocked out this fiscal year in the States, which is a completely unprecedented fiscal consolidation in inverted commas. Now it's a shrinking of the deficit that we haven't seen before, apart from one other period in history, which is the late 1940s. So that's happening. But then you get into the nature of cycles, which is they feed on themselves. So think about how you feel when you feel rich, versus when you feel poor. And if we all felt rich uh, six or seven months ago when markets were at their peak from November through December of 2021, US equity markets have given up something like $10 trillion of value since then. Um, and and uh, plus uh, crypto has given up, you know, sort of $1.8 trillion, something like that as well. Uh, sort of round numbers. So, so we we now begin to feel a bit poorer because the wealth effect feeds through to our consumption patterns. And so, you know, you've got to make a whole bunch of assumptions about, you know, what the wealth effect is from observing history. But, you know, given that magnitude of destruction of value, um, that could be sort of two, three, four percent of GDP knocked off the top as well of GDP growth. And I and, and look, we're now getting up to sort of 10 plus percent GDP figures. It's very important for people to realize that trend growth for the last sort of 15 years has been about two and a half. And we're talking about maybe 12 negative. So I really think people need to be focused on capital preservation, shall we say. But the story doesn't end there. Because then we get to the housing market. So while we don't have a problem on the funding side of the housing market that we once had in the US, we have an, an amazing picture in terms of um, 
median household, uh, median home price to household income, that's at a record high. Uh, inventories are very, very low. And to give you a sense, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the Case-Shiller index of house prices in the States that everyone sort of got obsessed about in 06, 07, 08. You know, if anyone's seen the big short, that was the, the thing that sort of settled that off. You know, that, that was at a level of about 160, 170, and that's now at a level, and it's just an index, right? So it doesn't, doesn't have any informational value apart from its level. That is now at 270, 280. So it's massively higher than it was back then. That's fine. You know, things go up and things go down. Um, but perhaps more worryingly, house prices just went up by 30% in two years in the States. That's, that's never happened. Feels like they're not even trying compared to some places near where we live. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> 30% is nothing. 100%. Yeah, 100%. You're absolutely right. Um, but so that that is now uh, under very significant pressure because the incremental buyer is being discouraged because, you know, mortgage rates have gone from about 2.6 to about 5.3, 5.4 in about seven, eight months. That's a big difference. So this is what a this is what the end of the cycle looks like. And it is remarkable to people who haven't lived through them that when your luck runs out, it all runs out. And that's that looks like what's happening in particular in the US and in particular in consumer and technology stocks. Now, um, let me just pause there, but before I do, let me really emphasize to people, it's not the end of the world. It's not a banking crisis. It's a bear market. We haven't had a bear market for 20 years. So most market participants won't have seen one. What they've seen is crisis. And so what they're used to is, oh, my God, this is terrifying and all the prices move massively and 18 months later it's over. I'm not talking about that kind of event. I don't think that's what we're in. We're in a bear market from ridiculously high valuations that is now correcting. And so it's not, and so the, the sobering thing I like to say to people is it's not, the, it's not the end of the world, but it is the end of a lot of people's comfortable retirement. Because if people are leveraged long to the wrong assets, they will get very, very severely impeded here. There'll be a lot of people listening who are either pricking up their ears or picking up a drink right now, thinking about what you have to say. And I will say, you know, we were having a little chat before we we went live with this recording. We've both lived through bear markets, um, although you're implying that the GFC period wasn't a bear market, which I find interesting. Um, peak to trough, that was 18 months, and I saw a lot of retail investors just lose the will to keep going with mm -hmm. investing. They just couldn't stick with it anymore. The losses were just too brutal, and so they threw in their holdings, sold at quite substantial losses in many cases and didn't come back to investing. And so they missed the subsequent bull run and um, and have suffered as a result. And I also, I remember a guy I worked with who 
worked in finance, knew what he was doing. He had about a million dollars to retire on at the time and retired in 2007 and was back at work in 2009 because he'd lost 40% of his portfolio. And these things happen and they're so hard at the time for the people in them. They're absolutely awful. But then we have had close to 15 years where no one's had any experience like that, right? And they have no memory of it. So so many questions, so many questions. Uh, and I'm also apologizing to anyone listening if I sounded facetious about the housing market. The housing market is very weird and uh, 30% in two years is not funny. It's pretty horrendous for anyone involved. If you're on the right side of it, it's great. If you're on the wrong side, it's horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many questions. First thing I'll ask You've talked about inflation and rates. You've talked about how the market has pulled back uh, as a result of that. Do you want to go into a bit more detail for those who are hearing these terms bandied around but have never really thought through why would higher inflation and higher interest rates mean companies are worth less? Why would I pay less for a company in that environment? Yeah, look, the excellent question and the the theoretical underpinnings of it are that if there's no interest rate in the system and or no inflation in the system, and they both have this sort of eroding of purchasing power effect, but let's let's stick with rates. If there's no interest rate in the system and you're promising me a trillion dollars of value in 10 years' time, it's extremely valuable in present value terms today because I don't have to discount that value by anything because there's no there's a couple of ways of understanding it the sort of finance theory type way is to say well the discount rate so the the denominator in the equation of what a a future cash flow is worth so it's a ratio the top number is what the cash flow is and the bottom number is what I have to discount it by the larger that bottom number is in the ratio the smaller the ratio is. That's sort of theoretical. The much more concrete way of understanding it is, mate, you're promising me a trillion bucks in 10 years and I get zero until then. But this government bond, which has no risk at all, is going to pay me 3% every year until then. Mm, I don't want your promises tomorrow. I want this value today. So I'll take that value today. So it, it the discount rate in the system changes the relative value of future promises versus current delivered cash flows. And that's all a bit sort of theoretical and whatever. It's kind of true, but it's not a sufficient explanation because always, always what happens in cycles is trends or fashions or fads develop. And people get massively carried away with stories that have a grain of truth, but nonetheless remain stories. And so we've seen that in droves in this cycle. And so it's this combination of no discount rate in the system, changing the relative value of future promises versus current cash, plus lovely stories. The combination of those two is what gives you a bubble. And and let me make absolutely no bones about it. We are just in the early stages 
I think we think of the implosion of one of the most significant bubbles in market history. And those processes take on a logic of their own on the way up, and they do so on the way down. And, and so now the stories that people have developed in their mind around either technology or you know, new social institutions and modes of delivering, storing, exchanging value like crypto, um, those stories, once the funding runs out to keep them going, they are shown to be valueless or to have massively lower values than people ascribe to them when, the, when times were good. So it's all of those factors all going together because people must remember, <laughs> well, you know, the finance people talk to them and try to sell them on stories and how predictive they can be about the future, that this is human physics. It's all humans doing it. And so when too many people get too excited about ideas, they're being funded um, with capital that's too readily available, you get bubbles on the way up and then on the way down, people are always shocked by how severe the, um, the value destruction is on the way back down. So the mistake that people make, old fuddy-duddies like me, <laughs> make on the way up is we underestimate how much we can pay for assets and that drives asset prices higher and higher and higher. And then on the way back down, many market participants underestimate the amount of value destruction that is required to take asset prices back to some sort of normal level. And what concerns me and concerns us is we're not even close. I do really want to talk about that. Uh, so thank you for explaining it. I think it's it's really easy to forget because we talk about valuation as if it's a perfect science quite a lot. Oh, we're going to look at valuations. We're like, well, it's basically what everyone reckons something is worth. And mm -hmm. clearly emotion plays a role and other extraneous factors like interest rates play a role as well, right? There's a lot of things that feed into valuations and so valuations are going to change. You've been talking recently a lot about bear markets and you've alluded to it already you know, most people listening have probably not lived through a meaningful bear market. Could you talk through what it looks like, how it operates? What is the what is the experience of an investor in a bear market? Because recently, a lot of investors have had a lot of success buying the dip, dollar cost averaging, all these sorts of strategies that do make sense in a market that's broadly rising. Yeah, the, look, the fascinating thing is we all have lived through a couple of bear markets, even if we weren't paying attention. So China has just had, is still in the midst of one of the great bear markets of all time. So 2007 to, through to 2013 is about the worst six years in equity market history in any major market for, for China. And that's the reverse of a bull market, right? So, so as I say that, as I say Chinese equities, the feeling that the listener experiences, that's the feeling that you get 
when you're at the bottom of a bear market. Now imagine that you get that feeling when someone says US tech stocks. That's the human element of what happens in market cycles. Everyone will know the reasons not to own the asset class that's deflating once it's at the bottom of its cycle. And everyone will lust after the asset that they must own that's so exciting, that's so wonderful, blah, 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 on the way up. It's the inverse of those two things that drive cycles. And this all sounds so simplistic, but it happens, you know, once every 10 to 15 years in major markets all over the world. It's not just that experiential emotional thing, it's also just a very mechanical process as well. So excessive funding dries up and if you change the supply of dollars relative to the supply of other financial assets, the price in dollars of those financial assets goes down. And that's what we're doing. That's what it means for interest rates to go up and for quantitative tightening to begin um, to occur. The latter is somewhat, somewhat nuanced. It doesn't actually affect the supply of dollars, but it affects the interest rates along the curve um, rather than supply of dollars, but that has an indirect effect on asset prices. So the amount of dollars chasing the amount of readily available financial assets changes and people's exposure to those assets change as a result as well. So if interest rates are very low and people can borrow a lot, that's the simplest way of thinking about it. But it's it also pertains to the structure of the market as well. So if volatility is low, quantitative strategies will have more exposure to markets. So if things are bumping around in a very moderate way in terms of pricing, people have more exposure to markets. That's one of the great drivers of bull markets. Bear markets have the reverse. So volatility remains very high and people's exposure in a mechanical sense shrinks. So quantitative strategies shrink their exposure to markets when volatility, the amount of bumping up and down, gets higher when that's larger. And that's the sort of mechanical part of it. So funding plus market exposure all dry up at the same time, at the same time as your emotions all change. That all, that all goes together. And it's a long process. It's a long process. So markets peaked from memory in the great tech bubble of the late 90s and the 2000s. Markets peaked, my recollection is, in late March. They began to turn in early April and they didn't reach their trough until mid-2003, by which time the NASDAQ in local currency in US dollars had lost roughly 78% of its value and it didn't make a new high for 15 years. My argument to people is this event has every indication of being as bad or worse. The excesses look worse to me. The macro setup looks worse to me. Um, and what, what, what I mean when I say that, you've got 6 to 8% inflation in the system with a cash rate of you know, 50 basis points, half a percent or whatever it is. 
you know, down at the at the Fed funds market level, with a US ten year of under three percent. So there's something massively out of whack there, and you've got that huge fiscal consolidation, which is completely unlike what occurred in that early two thousands period, and the level of valuation is massively higher in every way that matters apart from one because most people will point to earnings and say oh no that's crazy because you know everything got to much higher price earnings ratio in 2000 than they have in this period okay that's fine but that embeds a margin what's price to sales what's price to book what's uh, um, invested capital, uh, enterprise value to invested capital. What's market cap to GDP? It's massively higher this time. You know, 30% higher, 40% higher this time. So you'd better hope the margins don't go down. Now, do bear in mind that we just had 20% deficits injected into the US economy over two years, 20% GDP injected into that economy. And that you know, 10 over a couple of years has now gone to negative eight. So what do you think corporate profits are going to do, everybody? They're going to fall, likely. You know, one must be humble. I mean, what did Newton say? I, I, I can discern the path of heavenly bodies, but not the behaviour of people. He said that because he lost his shirt in the South Sea bubble. So, hey, I'm not as smart as Isaac Newton. But I can tell you what happened in the past, and I can tell you what it looks like right now. And it doesn't look good. That idea that this could be worse than the tech wreck might not mean a lot to a lot of people listening. Uh, many people will not have participated in that. I've told this story lots of times. I didn't participate because I started in markets like almost immediately after the bottom was hit. But you talked earlier about the emotion and I can absolutely tell you the prevailing emotion was depression. Like it was just extraordinary how depressed everyone I worked with was and all the buoyancy and bravado and confidence and everything they would have displayed two years earlier was just gone. Everyone was depressed. Their earnings, you know, as advisors uh, and stockbrokers were way down. The clients hated them. The clients they still had left. Like it was pretty dark and you know, I was pretty blithe about it because it was all new, but you know, you could see around you how much people had had suffered and and how challenging an environment it was for them. And so obviously we sincerely hope that no one's going to go through that experience because it's absolutely horrendous. And particularly if you're an older person, if you're young, you will probably have some periods in your life where you lose your shirt and you'll learn something from it. Like Isaac Newton, you can pretend that you're, you're very wise and, uh, and it's just a learning experience. But if you're older, you don't have that opportunity to make the money back. It's really difficult for people who are at that stage of life where this is, it's real and it's going to stick with you. If we looked at how do people cope in this environment and what strategies work, as I said, people have been using buy the dip for years now and it's worked really well until it didn't. Is buy and hold a viable strategy in this environment? So how do you look at this as a retail investor and plan ahead? Yeah, so first point is have cash. I've said this for years to people and the, the, the repulsion that that is met with is natural because cash isn't yielding, right? So, so, but this is the nature of cycles. They're paradoxical. 
the reason we have massive asset price excess is because of what's happening to the value of current day dollars, right, which don't pay you. So everyone swapped their current day dollars for promises of future glory in tech or consumer. When that reverses or as that reverses, you must have cash, right, because the value of good assets will fall, is falling alongside the value of pretty ordinary assets. The other thing too is many, many companies will go to zero. If you own something and you don't understand the value of it, you have to think about the value of it going to zero from whatever point you're at in terms of, hey, it was worth this six months ago, it can lose 100% of its value from today, definitionally. So always have that in the back of your mind. Um, from here looking forward, the thing to bear in mind is it's the concentration of investor activity into the sizzling, exciting parts of the global economy or the safe parts of the global economy, either either, that has led to this uh, excess in financial markets. And it is not at all apparent in vast swathes of the global economy. So, you know, uh, uh, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Switzerland, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of others I'm forgetting, but there are some very, very excited markets that are very expensive. Most other equity markets are very cheap. Japan's very cheap. Germany's very cheap. South Korea's very cheap. China's very cheap. Italy's very cheap. Right? So, so that's an interesting start point. The other point too is the thing that drove the cycle to where it is is freely available capital plus future stories of glory. Well, let's think about what happens when a cycle breaks. When it breaks, no one wants to go back to the thing that just burnt their fingers. So if this is actually a cycle that's breaking down and, and leadership changes, people ain't going to rush back to US tech. People ain't going to rush back to consumer financing stories based on some notion of use of technology or data, right? Because they just lost 95% or 100% of their money in some other story. <laughs> They'll go to something different. So what happened post-2000? A couple of years later, the US housing market started to pick up. Then you, got, then you began to have this pretty reasonable move in commodity prices. And you had this very different period that was characterised not so, so 1990s is like now. 2000s is like what it looks like looking forward, I think, is my guess. Disclaimer, disclaimer. But I don't know. Don't listen to me. You do you. But what it looks like to me is, hey, the oil price is 110 bucks, and no one's flying anywhere internationally and China's basically in recession. Metals prices have held on pretty strongly. I think they're going to come under more pressure, but they've held on very strongly. All of the above applies. Inflation looks like it's a feature of the system now, not a bug. And that's very different to the falling inflation you know, of, of the last cycle. So what does all that mean? Hey, probably you'll want to own industrials, materials, energy, emerging market exposures. And you probably at some point want to be not, you want to be sort of short US dollars, which is all of those exposures. But that's some way away, I think, because 
the last thing you want to do is look through the cycle. You don't want to look through this event. You want to look at it. It's happening. And the level of excess I've sort of already banged on about, I don't want to go on about it too much because it's too gloomy, but let me really enforce upon people the impression that we have never, ever seen the kind of excess in markets as widespread as it is, as we see today. Extraordinary levels of valuation. I mean, frankly, preposterous levels of valuation. So, so let me demonstrate. Netflix has fallen quite a lot, right? It's gone from 600 plus to 170 odd, right? At its current valuation yesterday, it was roughly the same size in enterprise value terms as Rio Tinto. That company has never generated any free cash flow cumulatively over its existence. Sorry, I'm laughing in the background here. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. It's not that funny. I think it's difficult for investors to understand that something that they have in their homes and such a tangible attachment to could be so bad at making a profit. It's only had one year that I can see disclaimer, disclaimer. Other people cover it and they can correct me if I'm wrong. But reading the annual reports, it's only ever posted one year of free cash flow. That was 2020, which wasn't a bad year for sitting on the couch. It's never generated free cash flow in any other year. And the cumulative level of free cash flow is so negative as as it's to be unbelievable. So that's the kind of excess in the system that needs to work through. And you need, so all those relative prices are changing, will continue to change. And I think that's largely um, a swapping of future promises for current value. That's the, that's the big transference that's occurring because the funding cost has changed. One, so I've recently been presenting at the ASX Investor Days, which is where we met. Uh, and exactly. we were talking about this some years ago. Uh, and my opening slide just says Tina is over. And Tina is the there is no alternative principle uh, which many people have heard of, but many people haven't actually, which is interesting. So I'm telling them it's over and they didn't know it was on in the first place. But everyone understands intuitively that there wasn't any alternative, that you really did have to chase risk assets because you got no return in cash. And now that is changing. The other thing that people might find entertaining, which is not in my presentation, but if you do follow Twitter, you'll find quite a few of the finance commentators with a little meme going around, which is how do you lose 90% in a share? It falls 80% and then it halves. Um, <laughs> which is maybe how some of these will go, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, hey, the other point too is if other people know better, that's fine. You know, if, if you pick the survivors of the Nifty 50 episode and held those through to the 90s, you know, so Coca-Cola and Gillette, a few of those, or, you know, if you pick the survivors of the tech bubble and held on to those for 20 years, right? So, I mean, principally Netflix. Oh, sorry, sorry, Amazon. Um, over those periods, you made really good returns in those individual stocks. Right? So that's fine. There's always survivors. There's always things that work. It's the clustering of all those. So just, I just want people to reflect on the number of times they hear someone say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if this business doesn't make any money because 
Amazon didn't make any money for the first 15 years. I mean, that's fine, but you're probably not going to own the next Amazon 25 times over. If you've got that bet 25 times, I don't think you've got a very good probability stack, right? It's very unlikely that you get the next Amazon, but if you do have it, you'll probably do fine. Um, so, you know, A, not the end of the world, and then B, in that sort of whole, you know, buy and hold thing we asked about before. But people should act to preserve capital. I think they should still act to preserve capital because we haven't seen a, a, a whole series of things happen that I think we need to see in order to have any confidence that we're at or near a bottoming. I think it's blindingly obvious that the US is heading into recession. Absolutely blindingly bloody obvious. I can be wrong. See Isaac Newton above but that's my view. So why would I say that? Unemployment always troughs right before you hit a recession. Consumer confidence is terrible. So the, uh, to, to get a sense, go and Google the uh, uh, University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Series. Ne uh, you've got negative real wages growth, so wages aren't keeping up with inflation. And now you're getting these massive moves in the retailers. So very safe stocks like Target and Walmart are correcting by 15 to 25% in a night, Aussie time. That doesn't happen without something underlying. And that something underlying is the next stage of this, which is you go from an asset price cycle to an economic cycle. Reflexively, one drives the other. We were entering one of those and then we hit as in 2020. And then we hit that wall of stimulus, which is now all reversing, both fiscally and monetarily. So you ain't gonna get that savior this time. And now, you, so you need to see unemployment rise a lot, credit spreads blow out a lot, and then begin to correct. And that, they're, they're actually very late, you know, leading indicators. In fact, they're lagging indicators, sorry, but you, you must see the rise in unemployment, the, the blowing out of credit spreads, so how much? It costs uh, companies to borrow relative to the government or some other low-risk asset. Um, until you see that kind of real-world economic impact, I doubt we're anywhere near a bottom. But when you do, this is the other really important thing. When you do see that, when the when the mainstream press is saying, "Woe is me! It's all terrible. We're going into recession. It's all awful," then you need to think maybe we're reaching a bottom. And also, if you've got long time frames, you understand what you're buying, bottoming is a process, not a point. Don't try and pick bottoms. Try and commit capital at valuations that you're comfortable with in businesses you understand or assets you understand for long periods of time. That time is not far away. It's not far away. Oh, that's interesting. Because uh, the great fear in this environment is it can take a long, long time to reach the bottom. And those yep. who've only seen the COVID crash, which as someone said, you know, I've had lunches longer than that bear market, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, might, might feel it should be short and sharp. And those of us who've seen the really long, nasty ones might think it might take a lot longer. I, it'll yeah, when I say... You know that time's approaching. It's it's months away, months and years away, right? But so not five years away. It's not five years. It's not ten years. It's not right. So and the, but the other thing too is 
for God's sake, don't go back to the thing that you know worked 18 months ago. So what are the really interesting things happening in the global economy now, right now? Um, China's had ongoing lockdowns for two years plus. It's trying to stimulate its economy. And both of those things are likely to change and they are both likely to change simultaneously, right? So the, the transmission mechanism of the stimulus will begin to work once the lockdowns begin to end because there's no way, like it's pushing on a string at the moment. And that's occurring as you've got very, very high metals prices and energy prices. The sad reality of that is that could actually compound the misery of the US consumer because energy is hugely important to them. And you might not be able to get, you know, back down to a very low rate of interest driven by a very low rate of inflation if you've got this real world driver in China beginning to pick up in the next, say, 18 months or so. So that's a really interesting prospect or potential, right? And then the other thing too is we're going into this period, we're in this period of very strong US dollar. At the same time as you've got commodity price strength and relative gold price strength. So what happens when we get US dollar weakness? Because the dollar goes in cycles as well. So then you want to own lots of commodities, lots of emerging markets, and lots of right. So, so there's all these things that are going to happen that are, that are you know, very sorry. Are, I should say are going to happen, might happen. They're out there in the future, and those markets, the markets that are the main beneficiaries of that, are by and large very cheap. And so then we get back to Australia, about which I know almost nothing. You know, I just live in this little bubble and don't really know anything about real Australia, and all your listeners will know more than me. So take my view with a grain of salt. But we're somewhere in between. You know, we have an emerging market style economy for half of our economy because we dig stuff out of the ground. And we've got a post-industrial consumer financial and tech economy with not much actual genuine tech. Um, for the other half of our economy, a services-based economy for the other half, half of our economy, I think, could do very, very well, very well in the next five to 10 years or whatever because that stuff coming out of the ground is going to remain pretty valuable. And then the other half of that economy could be pretty impeded. So the net of all those could be we're somewhere in between. So, you know, there's, I think people must be focused right now on where the cycle is and capital preservation, holding some cash and being careful. And they have to remember that when the cacophony of voices tells them that this is the worst, I have to remember Shakespeare's words. This is not the worst, so long as we can say this is the worst. You've got to remember that when everyone's telling you it's bad, it's probably not as bad as they're telling you, but we're not there yet. Julian, first of all, all of that's super helpful. And I think for investors in this environment, there's a lot to be said for looking at history and understanding this as part of a cycle, because if you haven't seen it before, it feels very bad. You often provide commentary on LinkedIn. And I would say like LinkedIn's mostly for people bragging about stuff they did at work or just posting photos. Your stuff's awesome. And you post a lot of interesting, insightful, personal content around markets where you believe things are. So if you're into LinkedIn, I would suggest finding Julian. Platinum, you guys provide excellent broader commentary. Where do people go to find out more about you guys and what you're thinking? 
www.platinum.com.au and then we've got a section of our website called the journal and you know culturally we're not we don't try and sell anyone anything and i'm really proud of that culture here and that's reflected in what i talk about on social media which i kind of i hate social media so <laughs> that's why you're not going to find anything out about me personally on there but it's a useful way of communicating in real time with clients and people who are interested. So that's that side was great. So yeah, check out our journal website. And um, the other part too is if you're interested, just call us. So just look us up, you know, nine two five five seven five hundred or whatever it is. I actually can't remember that number, but I'm pretty sure that's it in Sydney. And you actually talk to someone who knows about investing. With no personal advice, obviously, but uh... absolutely no personal advice, no. <laughs> and and also just genuinely not a sort of fest. We're not going to shove product down your throat. That's not what we're about. Because that's why we have a business. That's why we have a business. It's it's because we have been able to do an adequate job of protecting capital through cycles for you know 27, 28 years. And people, people respond very badly to promises that are broken, so they leave. <laughs> but they will stick with you if you can protect capital and do roughly what you say you're going to do. That's why we have a business. So we're not going to try and flog you anything. We're just going to try and explain to you what we are and what we do. It's been an interesting decade or so uh, <laughs> for many people who manage money professionally. I think it was only a couple of years ago we were seeing the headline saying has Buffett lost it and then suddenly he's all back in the exactly. headlines again. <laughs> Isn't that funny? No, exactly, Jim. I mean, we've both been through two of these cycles, right? You know, I started investing in 98 and I remember all that new economy stuff and, and you know, Buffett's a loser because he doesn't understand it. It was, it was his first year of underperforming the, the S&P in 99, I think, uh, from memory. I'd have to check that. Um, the same thing happened in 06, 07. And the same thing happened in sort of, you know, 2020, 2021. And, you know, there is always the risk that a Buffett has lost it or a Platinum has lost it or a, a Jeremy Grantham has lost it or a bloke alike or whoever. But maybe the reverse is true. You know, maybe these old doddery old folks might have something to say about the stage of the cycle. Just maybe. And that's the problem. It's human physics. There's never an answer. There's just probabilities. And when you get to the kind of, frankly, obscene kind of valuations and behaviour that we got to in the last two years, because, hey, Jim, I mean, markets were pretty expensive two, two and a half years ago, and then the NASDAQ doubled, right? It doubled. So you know that thing about a stock losing 80 and then half of itself? Think about a market that's really expensive on all objective measures relative to history and then doubles. That's what we just went through. And that probably has to come back out. That's a powerful thought to leave people with. <laughs> uh, hang on tight, everybody. It's all happening. Uh, Julian McCormack from Platinum Asset Management, thank you so much for joining us today. I always appreciate talking with you because you have so much rich knowledge of history, but also you tell it the way you see it, which is not necessarily something very common in this industry. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. 
As always, thank you so much for listening. We love hearing from you guys. Get fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions. I know who you like hearing from. Please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.